When one looks back on his life, there are certain moments in time that are unforgettable, especially moments in time that make me laugh out loud today. Some people tell me I have more of those moments than most others. I suppose that may be true, but it could also be because I've always naturally looked for the lighter things in life. When you view life from a hearse, lighter moments become very important. If you are a fact checker, the great majority of these moments in time you're about to hear are first-hand accounts that happened to me. There are only a few that I was told about that happened before my time. I will identify those as happening before my time. If you like to laugh, you're about to get a real opportunity to do so. My moments in time. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. The time. When I was a kid and ordered a nudist colony magazine that included plenty of pictures, they said it would come in a brown paper-wrapped package. The postmaster, who was one of my mama's best friends and her prayer partner, personally delivered it to my mother. They were both sitting in the living room with the magazine, waiting on me when I got home from school. The time. When I was a kid and decided to drive my mama's new Oldsmobile Vista station wagon around our driveway with my eyes closed, I ran into the side of our house. I was hoping nobody would see the damage to the car or the house. They did see both. There was discipline involved. The time. I was invited to a birthday party where the group would be on a live kids TV show in Columbus, Georgia. During the first part of the show, we were told to line up and we would each pass by Capo Hap himself on live TV, who had a microphone in his hand. We were asked to introduce ourselves. All the parents would gather around their TVs with their antennas pointing towards Columbus to see their kids. It was a big deal. My nickname was Lucy, and my friend's nickname was Woochie. Although all the kids were giving their real names to the cap, my friend and I agreed to use our nicknames. He went first. My name is Woochie Bird from Reynolds, Georgia. I followed, but I chickened out. My name is Bruce Goddard from Reynolds, Georgia. Speaking of that friend, the time. In the third grade, we realized we had the same girlfriend. It was heartbreaking at first and could have ruined a good friendship. But when her birthday came around, we came up with a good plan. We went in together and bought a small red suitcase, or training case it may have been called. We signed the card, We Love You, Woochie and Lucy. It may have been a Christmas present instead of a birthday present. The time. My older brother and his friend had started a club and wanted to know if I wanted to join. For the initiation, I had to jump out of the bedroom window and run around the house buck naked. Of course I wanted to join. I did as instructed. When I ran around the house and got back to the bedroom, they had closed the window and both were nowhere to be found. I had to go to the front door and ring the doorbell to get back in the house. I never asked how Mama explained that to her Bible study group who was meeting in the living room. The time. My buddy and I had a harebrained idea. 
to take our raging hormones over to a girl's house one night with the intention of knocking on her window to see if she would climb out and hang out with us. We obviously made some noise in the flower bed that could easily be heard by her mama. Windows were mainly raised in those days. All of a sudden, the outside lights were turned on, and we ran for our lives. I almost lost my life when I ran straight into a guide wire about two backyards away that caught me in the neck and flipped me over. We were fast, so I never had to explain to the girl's mother what I was doing in her flower bed. I did have a hard time explaining the bloody stripe on my neck to my mama. The time after the Beatles had debuted on the Ed Sullivan Show and garage bands were starting to spring up all over. One Saturday, I was waiting my turn for a haircut at Jim Brewer's Sanitary Barbershop. My friend Eddie was ahead of me, and he had a crew cut, which equated to very, very short hair. He told Mr. Jim he wanted a Beatles haircut. I remember thinking, I can't wait to see how he does that. If Eddie did finally get a Beatles haircut, and I can't remember, it had to be at least several months later. The time, speaking of barbershops, when business lady Willerine opened an upscale hair design shop in Reynolds, she not only styled women's hair, but also did men's hair. Males going to females' beauty shops had been unheard of before then. Wayne, the regular barber in town at the time, did not like what was happening one bit. My friend Jimmy went to Wayne to get his hair cut after a few times of getting his hair cut at Willerine's. Wayne knew it. As he was cutting his hair, Wayne confronted Jimmy about going to the beauty parlor. Jimmy sheepishly admitted to the betrayal. After the haircut, Wayne asked Jimmy if he had also started wearing Kotex. The time. Speaking of garage bands and my friend Jimmy, that we formed a band called the Discords. Our band mainly consisted of practices, but we did have at least two gigs. The first was to play at Mary Jo Goodrow's birthday party. We couldn't wait to show off our talents and to play for a live dancing party. We did not consider ahead of time that we knew only three songs and didn't know the words to those. Mary Jo's mother had to bring out the record player pretty early in the evening. The other gig was at the Woman's Club. We were going to play two songs. The first was The House of the Rising Sun, which looking back was at least a little inappropriate, a song about a house of ill repute for a group of senior female club members. The next song was to back up Bunny Marshall as she sang a very popular song, These Boots Are Made For Walking. We didn't realize there were actually verses to the song. All we knew was a chorus. It didn't turn out well. Miss Winnie, the club pianist, ended up accompanying Bunny on the piano. The time. I was at the swimming pool across the street at the Watley's house, and Sue Watley told me I had rubbed enough suntan lotion on the girls who were gathered at the pool. I think she realized I was enjoying my work rather immensely. I always thought the girls were enjoying it too, but then again, I suppose I could be wrong. That would not be the first time I was wrong about a girl. The time. A friend and I were playing golf, and there were a foursome of grown men playing behind us. We decided to pee in the cup on number four. We stood on number five green and watched as each player putted out and reached down to get the ball and shook the ball dry as they walked to the next tee. We never knew when they began to smell urine, or if they did. 
but we did make the decision to skip a few holes to get ahead of them and then get the heck out of there, just in case. The time, before my time, when my grandfather, who tended to blame his mishaps on others, scheduled a graveside funeral before the body arrived on the train. He had broken a cardinal rule in the funeral business. The rule that says never schedule anything until you have taken the deceased in your care. So my daddy, who had warned his daddy that he should not schedule the funeral until the body arrived, was at the train station with a helper waiting on the body to come in on the train while Big Daddy, my grandfather, was continuously and nervously looking at his watch as the crowd gathered for the graveside service. The body finally arrived and Daddy and the helper loaded the casket and drove the hearse as fast as possible to the cemetery. When Daddy drove up 30 minutes late and opened the back door of the hearse, Big Daddy, who was in earshot of the entire ground who was watching, asked Daddy rather loudly, Son, where have you been? Daddy just stared at him. As they were putting the casket on the Lord of Vice at the graveside, Big Daddy told Daddy the family wanted to open the casket. Reluctantly, Daddy opened the casket, having no idea what he would find. During the train ride and all the moving back and forth, the little deceased lady had slid to the foot of the casket. Big Daddy looked in the casket and didn't see her. He then loudly asked a question that caused the family and other mourners to gasp out loud. Son, what'd you do with the body? The time. That same grandfather called my brother and me back to his office. He said he wanted to give us a Christmas present. We were excited, as he had never done that before. He pulled out his very large checkbook. He wrote a check to me for $10 and wrote a check to my brother for $7.50. He knew I was planning to come back one day to take over the family business, and my brother had no such intentions. The time. My grandfather called me to his house to change his broken toilet seat. He told me the new seat was in his utility house in the backyard. I took the seat off and went to the backyard to get the new one. The new one turned out to be the broken one he'd taken off the same toilet about 15 years early. Maybe he figured the old broken toilet seat had somehow healed itself in the utility house after all those years. He certainly saw no reason to spend the money to purchase a new seat. The time. Much later, when he was 96 years old, and Big Daddy slowly disappeared into a grave at a very sandy cemetery, just as the minister had begun speaking at the funeral. I knew we were burying someone's grandfather, but I had to get my own grandfather out of the grave so I had to stop the proceedings. Thankfully, the minister and many of the grieving family helped me get him out, which turned into quite an ordeal. Several minutes later, we got him up, and he stood there leaning on his cane, and as the minister was about to start over again, Big Daddy stated very professionally to the mourners, everything in the grave looks fine. The time, I put a perfectly placed golf tee on the pew in front of me at the Reynolds United Methodist Church on a Sunday morning, when everybody was standing and singing, when we all get to heaven. When my friend sat on the tee after the song, he immediately jumped up and yelled, 
Some in the congregation thought he had caught the spirit. My mother was not one of those. She came down out of the choir loft in her choir robe and escorted me to the front row in front of God and everybody. It embarrassed my wife and children greatly. The time. The preacher stopped in the middle of the sermon and said, If the boys on the third row will stop talking, I will continue the sermon. I happened to be on the third row, and I was a boy. By the way, I was kidding about me having a wife and children during the Goff Tea incident. The time. When I was nine years old and my older sister was graduating from high school, I think it may have been at the baccalaureate service. I also think it was my first experience with IBS. There would be many more. My mama had me dressed in a coat and tie. I told her I needed to go to the bathroom, but she refused my indulgence. Somewhere during the ceremony, I completely dirtied my pants. If I had been older, I would have excused myself in spite of my mother or called the fire department for help. But in my youth, I sat there in it. After the ceremony, I was standing next to my sister in some sort of receiving line. I never said a word, but the expressions on faces as they shook my sister's hand or hugged her neck spoke volumes. The time. My future wife and two of her friends were singing a trio as part of a service to dedicate a prayer room at the Baptist church. The song they were attempting to sing was, The Savior is Waiting. Someone in the trio had a growl of the stomach as they began to sing. The girls got tickled and had to stop singing. They attempted about three restarts, but laughter would prevail. They finally sat down and the pianist played the song, Alone. I'm not sure if the Savior was waiting, but my wife's mother was waiting when she came out of the church building. The time. I was bullied in school, and my dad gave me some sage advice over breakfast, very much against my mama's wishes. Hit him as hard as you can with your fist right between his eyes. I took my daddy's advice during P.E. that afternoon. I got a pretty painful paddling by the principal but the bully never bullied me again. The time I moved as a brand new freshman at the University of Georgia into the dorm I had been assigned called Millage Hall. I waved goodbye to my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and my parents as they left me there after helping me move in. I had not met my roommate yet, and knew no one in the dorm. I was a little teary-eyed and sad when I walked back to the dorm from the parking lot. I decided to go to the big public restroom to gather myself. I went in one of the stalls and started reading the graffiti that was written on the inside of the bathroom stall door. I noticed something was written very small at the bottom of the door. I had to bend way over to read it. You are now shitting at a 45-degree angle. I laughed out loud, and cottage life had begun. The time. I took my first test at UGA my freshman year. Nobody told me not to schedule a first period class my first quarter in college. I would get out of bed, put on something, and walk to class. No shower, no hair combing, no toothbrushing, no nothing. I had a hard time paying attention, to say the least, that early in the morning. The first test was a discussion test, and I bull skated my way through on each question. When the professor began handing out grades a few days later, I saw a few A's, a few B's, and several C's. 
Most seemed to have comments in red ink under the grades from the professor. He handed me my test, and it was an E. No red ink anywhere. I was thinking college is going to be a breeze if I made an excellent on that test when I knew none of the material. When I was leaving after class that day, the professor stopped me at his desk. His words, Mr. Goddard, I don't like to give F's on a student's first test in my class, but there is no way I could give you a D. The time. I took another test in another subject a year or two later at UGA when I cheated on a test. I had been sick and could not study, so I rationalized the cheating was okay, I suppose. This was also a discussion test. There was a very smart girl sitting next to me taking the test, and I felt confident she was very prepared, although I wasn't. I played like I was answering the questions, but I was really taking notes, writing bullet points, really, from her answers as she wrote them down. I took really good notes, and then finally answered the questions in my own words from the information she knew. She finished far ahead of me, and I was the last person to turn my test in. I was very pleased when we got the results. She made a B. I made an A. The time. I was taking an advanced math class with a few of my fraternity brothers. One of my brothers came in while we were getting ready to study and announced he had obtained a master key from a maintenance worker to the math building that would fit all the office doors. One of the guys had been in the professor's office that day and said he had seen copies of the test we were about to take lying on the professor's desk. He said if we could get it, it would save us a lot of study time. Three or four of us headed out to the building that night. Somehow, I got chosen to actually go in the office to get a copy of the test off his desk. We had a couple on lookout. We had a system in place. Someone knocked on the wall one time, it meant all was clear. If they knocked on the wall twice, that meant a teacher was in the hall and headed to his or her office. I had just got in the office when they knocked on the wall twice. I grabbed a flower vase that was on a bookshelf and stood behind the door waiting on the professor to come in the door. Thank God the teacher in the hall went into another office. We never got the copy of that test, and thank God I never hit anyone over the head with a flower vase. But I also never tried to go in a teacher's office again after that. The time. I made a C, D, and an F the first quarter I lived in the fraternity house. My hometown friend, Debbie, was supposed to ride home with me for Christmas break. It was getting pretty close to Christmas, and Debbie began calling me, wondering when we were going home. I knew Daddy was going to kill me, and I was putting off going home. I tried to get a couple of the teachers to change my grade, but to no avail. We finally went home. I drove slow. I dropped Debbie off at her house and went to the store to see Daddy and to face the music. I began by telling him I had made a C in math. He said, there is no excuse for you making a C in anything. I then told him I made a D in economics. I could see his face getting red. I finally told him I made an F in literature. I told him I spent all my time in one subject. He abruptly turned and walked away. I drove home thinking that turned out better than I thought it would. I went in the bathroom at home and was sitting on the commode when I saw the bathroom door handle turning. It was locked, but that did not stop him. He ripped the door open, and he let me have it. He used words that are not appropriate for a podcast. I really don't know what all he said that day, 
But I do know I never made another D and never made another F the entire time I was in college. The time, the quarter after the C, D, and F episode, and a result of my discussion with my dad when I was sitting helplessly on the commode, when I got a job as an EMT, emergency medical technician, at the Jackson County Ambulance Service in Jackson County, Georgia. That was the next county north of Clark County in Athens. I worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. and took a full load at college during the day for several months. I was very proud to be making $3 per hour. It was good money. That is until the riot of 1974 in commerce. A car full of boys drove down the street and began shooting over houses trying to scare people. Somehow they shot a little girl in the head. I was one of the EMTs called to the scene that night, and there was a crowd of rowdy and upset folks at the scene. And there were more shootings. I was very relieved to get to take my patient to Atlanta, which would mean I would not have to go back out to the riots. That was only going to get worse. At least I thought. When we got back from Atlanta about 6 a.m., the director of the ambulance service was waiting on us with bulletproof vest. I resigned on the spot. The $3 an hour all of a sudden didn't sound good at all when I had to wear a bulletproof vest to earn it. The time before I left Jackson County Ambulance Service, when I got a call in my room at the fraternity house about 9 p.m. on a Saturday night. A nurse that worked in the hospital in Commerce was on the other line. She began making small talk, and I was wondering why she called. She finally told me her husband was out of town and asked me if I wanted to come see her. Although tempting, I was a college boy with a married nurse asking me out. I had sense enough to say no. A few years later, I was told this lady's husband was in prison for shooting a man messing with his wife. Maybe the smartest decision I ever made. The time, in 1974, when the streaking began in Athens. The week ended with the big streak where the world's record was broken for the most naked people gathered together in the history of the world. But during the week leading up to that night, there were naked people everywhere. Athens was naked city. Somehow, some way, one night during that week, a fraternity brother and I dribbled a basketball down Millage Avenue as naked as we came into the world. There was a party going on at the fraternity house, and we caused a, quite a commotion from all the folks on the front porch when we dribbled by. We ended up dribbling up to a sorority house down the street. Amid all the screaming and laughs, we dribbled through the front door and right into their big den. When the ball hit my foot and went under a chair, I had to bend down to get it. The only standing ovation I ever received in college. The time when a fraternity brother and I drove over to the girl's dorm called Brumby Hall to pick up his blind date. Blind dates were extremely popular in those days. You had been set up by someone, but you had no idea what your date looked like except what the person who set you up told you. The female dates were obviously in the same boat. You would walk in Brumby Hall and pick up one of the phones and call your date's room. She would tell you what color she had on and you would tell her what color you were wearing. When she came down the elevator, you would meet her for the first time. My blind date that night was at another dorm, so I waited in the car as my friend went in to get his date. I saw them coming out into the parking lot. I couldn't believe it as I watched from my car as he very politely opened the door of someone else's car to let her in. Did he forget what car we were in? 
After he let her in the car, he hurriedly walked to my car and got in. Let's get out of here. He figured out quickly that he didn't like his date, so he left the poor girl sitting alone in a stranger's car. I often wondered how long it took her to figure out he was gone. Looking back, I am positive that rude behavior was a blessing in disguise for her. The time, my roommate at the fraternity house broke up with his very gorgeous girlfriend and began dating another gorgeous girl. I knew girlfriend number one very well, and I'd gotten word that she was not a happy camper. One night, I was standing on the front porch of the fraternity house with a few other folks, and gorgeous girlfriend number one walked up and started kissing me. I mean, really kissing. It was obvious she knew this would get back to my roommate who had broken up with her, and she wanted to make him mad or maybe jealous. But I was very happy to oblige. We actually had a couple of rendezvous after that, but at some point, she kind of disappeared. I surmised she figured that getting back at her ex-boyfriend would not work. But I was always mighty happy she tried to get back at him. The time, one summer, during college, that my future brother-in-law and I went to Panama City, Florida for a week. I drove a 1964 push-button Plymouth. I was about 20 years old, and he would have been 16. We struck off to Florida in my car, but there was one minor problem with the car we were traveling in. The car would not go in reverse. I cannot believe my parents allowed me to drive to Florida in a car that would not go backwards. We learned a couple of things during that week. The first was you have to plan ahead and think through thoroughly ahead of time exactly where you park so you can get out. Secondly, we learned that having a reverse gear on your car is a nice thing to have, but it really isn't necessary. The time. I got a call from my very concerned mama while I was in Athens. She told me it had been brought to her attention from her friend who worked at the bank and who was my former Sunday school teacher, who could see details of my personal bank account, that I was spending a lot of money at Five Points Beer and Wine. I tried to explain to Mama that a fraternity brother worked there, and that's where most of us cashed checks in those days. I doubt she believed me. I did very quickly, however, move my personal checking account to a bank in Athens. the time, as an adult, I was waiting on a family at the funeral home. They had picked out a rather expensive funeral, and I was wondering how they planned to pay for it. When I got to the paying part, the bereaving husband told me he would pay me next week. He went on to say that he was supposed to hear from the Reader's Digest sweepstakes the next Friday. I told him I needed a little more to go on than that. The time, I went with my daddy on a death call in the middle of the night at a home when I was a teenager. The sister of the deceased asked daddy for a special favor after Dr. Sams left. She said, I know Dr. Sams is a fine doctor and he's pronounced my sister dead, but I will feel better if you let Dr. Watley see her just to make sure she's dead before you start the embalming process. Daddy quickly agreed. He pulled up at Dr. Watley's house, who was our next door neighbor, and Daddy rang the doorbell. Dr. Watley came to the door in his pajamas. We used the hearse as an ambulance in those days, so it's not unusual for us to have a sick person in the hearse for Dr. Watley to see. 
Anyway, Daddy asked Dr. Watley to check on this lady. Dr. Watley quickly put his pants on over his pajama bottoms and got his little black bag and hurried in the back of the hearse. Daddy was standing in his driveway waiting. After a couple of minutes, Dr. Watley stuck his head out of the door of the hearse and said, Ed, this lady's dead. Daddy said that's all I wanted to know. The time. I received a call from my office on my bag cell phone back when cell coverage was very sketchy. I was told my friend had a flat tire and was wondering what I was going to do about it. I was totally confused, so I pulled over to the side of the road so as not to lose my connection. I asked her to repeat what she told me. Again, she repeated that my friend was on the side of the road with a flat tire and was waiting on me and added that his name was Greg. Now I was totally confused. Greg who? I could hear her going through some papers and she found the name she had written. Greg Dickencrew. I asked her to spell Dickencrew. D-I-C-K-E-N-C-R-E-W. I told her I had never heard of a Greg Dickencrew. She seemed surprised because the caller acted like we knew each other well. I ended the call and was traveling to a cemetery to make sure the grave was ready for a funeral schedule later that afternoon. I was racking my brain trying to think of a Greg Dickencrew who was supposed to be my friend and was waiting on me with a flat tire. As I pulled up to the cemetery, I was surprised to see the big vault truck in the middle of the cemetery next to the grave. When I walked up to the grave, the light came on. It was the grave digging crew who needed me, not Greg Dickin crew. The time, a man in his early 90s visited me at the funeral home and wanted to prearrange a funeral for his wife who was suffering the final stages of cancer and living at a nursing home. He went over all the information and then he handed me a $20,000 insurance policy for me to hold for payment. He said he had just taken the policy out. I knew nobody would insure someone dying of cancer. I looked at the policy and told him this was an accidental policy and only paid if his wife was tragically killed on a public common carrier like an airplane or train. He didn't believe me. He told me he was going to have his agent call me. I never heard from the agent, but I did hear from the husband a couple of days later when I picked up his deceased wife. He told me he knew she didn't have much time to live because when he tried to make love to her the night before in the nursing home, she didn't respond. I am still waiting to be paid for that funeral. The time I called my brother in the middle of the night to tell him that Miss Cleo had passed away, I woke him up out of a dead sleep and he said, I am sure sorry, and he hung up the phone. I had to call him back. Mac, I'm not calling you to pass on information. We got to go pick her up. The time. I was waiting on a family, and the rather large-breasted wife of the couple I was talking to had a real name of Louise, but everyone knew her as Toots. I accidentally asked her if she wanted me to put her name in the paper as Louise or Tits. I could not unring that bell and just had to apologize for my mix-up. I thought Jeff, who worked for me and who was in the office, was going to have a heart attack to keep from laughing. The time. A man came to see me unannounced at the funeral home. I'd buried his wife several months earlier. 
He told me he was dying of cancer and he wanted me to handle his funeral, but he had a special request. He wanted me to bury his dog with him when he died. He also wanted me to meet his dog who was in the car. I walked out to meet his dog who almost bit me when I introduced myself, but I agreed to his request, hoping I would never hear about it again. Several months later, he died. When I went out to make the removal, a family member was holding the little dog. I recognized the dog and I think the dog recognized me. He began to growl. I intentionally did not bring up the matter of me burying the dog with their father. But as I was about to leave with their loved one, one of the family members brought the growling dog to me and tried to hand him to me. I quickly told them I had no way to kill their dog. Did they think I was going to take him to the funeral home and hit him over the head with a brick? Long story short, they ended up having the dog put to sleep. And before the funeral, brought the dead dog to the funeral home for me to bury with their father which I did. The time my brother Mac and I went on a death call in 1976 in the middle of the night after we had purchased the funeral home in Roberta, Georgia. I was still in mortuary school at the time. We had a part-time worker who knew everyone in that county that rode with us to make the home removal. When we arrived, a rather large crowd had gathered at the home. Henry, the part-time employee, saw the sun in the headlights as we drove up and pointed him out to us. The son came up to the window and told us he would direct us as to where to park. I was watching him in the rearview mirror as I backed up. He brought us to the back steps. After I stopped, Mac and Henry got out and went into the house for Henry to introduce Mac to the family. I walked around the back of the hearse and the son had opened the back door and was trying to pull the cot out. I told him I wanted to wait until Mac and Henry came out before we go in the house. I knew they would scope it out and know which room the deceased was in and the best path to get there. But the son insisted. So I hit the latch and took the cot out. He had the front end of the cot and I was following with the foot. To the shock of all the people who had gathered there, we walked right into the kitchen with the cot. I told the son to keep moving and get out of the kitchen. We finally got in the hall and he stopped and looked at me, asking which room his daddy was in. His response is one I'll never forget. He's in a nursing home in Macon. The time, I picked up a man from another state who had been killed in an automobile accident. As we were making plans to prepare his body and to ship him home, there was a rather interesting development. We discovered he had two wives. Neither of the wives knew about the other. We found ourselves in a quandary. One of the wives wanted him embalmed and took him back to Alabama. The other wife did not want him embalmed and wanted him cremated. The parents of the deceased eventually drove over to Reynolds to help us figure out what to do. They knew about one wife, but not the other. As we discussed the situation with the family in our office, and by then it was late at night, we knew we had to get permission from someone to embalm the deceased while they worked this legal stuff out. As we were discussing that, our part-time employee who also happened to be a pastor, saw the lights on at the funeral home and came in the back door and walked up to the office. He had originally been with me when we picked up the man that morning, so he was surprised we were still there. As he heard about us talking about embalming, he blurted out to everyone in the office, including one of the wives and his parents who were in the room, if y'all don't do something with him, the buzzards are going to take him off. The time, my daddy introduced me to a lady I will call Miss Flutie as she was coming in the grocery store with a man. 
Daddy quickly told me he had buried three or four of her husbands and it looked like she had a new one. He said she would want our help to change the beneficiary on his life insurance to her. Daddy also said it was time for me to get to know her and know how to handle her wishes. So I walked out in the parking lot to greet them and I noticed she was blowing her nose in her hand. I nervously shook her hand anyway and introduced myself as Mr. Ed's son and asked her if I could help her. She handed me a life insurance policy and told me this is her new husband, Mr. Jones, and I want y'all to bury him too. The time when I was traveling, I was at a funeral home in another state that was under my responsibility. The female manager and the female office manager wanted to talk to me privately about a female employee who they said did not wear underwear to work. They told me that it was very inappropriate and wanted to know what I was going to do about it. I was absolutely sure I was not going to check for myself, nor was I going to appoint an underwear checker at the location. As we were discussing next steps, the office manager pulled out a can of Lysol from her desk and told me she goes around spraying wherever the underwear-less lady gets up from sitting. My response was innocent, but it came out. This could be a sticky situation. All of a sudden, the two ladies busted out laughing. I don't know if the employee ever started wearing underwear or not, nor did I care. But I did know there was nothing in the employee handbook that required it. The time. Early, when I was working for the large company, when I was at a public event, our company was sponsoring near Atlanta with my new boss and his wife. Since I was from Georgia, my boss wanted me to do the interview with an Atlanta TV station about what we were sponsoring and why. I was introduced to the very attractive and large-breasted television news reporter. She extended her hand to me in a professional way to shake it and introduced herself. I also introduced myself with one small error. Hi, I'm Breast Goddard. Another bell I could not unring. My former boss's wife calls me Breast Goddard to this day. The time, my very old-schooled, aged, and widowed maternal grandmother told my brother and I that she had never seen herself naked. That brought on many questions from us. How do you take a bath? I don't look. You had two children. How did that happen? The lights were off. She was not kidding. Trust me. The time when my grandfather died at 97 years old. His wife called me when she found him in his chair. When I got there, I could not help but notice that day's edition of the Making Telegraph was in his hands. It was carefully folded to the obituary page. I mentioned that if he had waited one more day, he could have read his own. The time. My grandmother died and my wife and I took her casketed body to Fort Myers, Florida in our Chevy Astro van for the burial service. That journey is full of stories, including locking her in the van with the keys inside. We had to call a locksmith at 1 a.m. to get the door open. His expression when he realized we had my deceased grandmother in the van is an expression I will never forget. I suspect he never forgot my expression either. time. My daddy walked in the Dealerburger diner with a pistol in his pocket filled with blanks. 
He played like he was upset because there was not enough sugar in the jar for his coffee. He pulled out the pistol and shot a few times at the ceiling. Everybody in the diner hit the floor. That would not go over very well today. In fact, I don't think it went over very well then either. The time, a couple of my friends were downtown on the sidewalk showing off two very large strings of fish caught on a big lake about three hours from town. Of course, Daddy took a picture of the proud fishermen and their big catch. He told them he would take the picture to the local paper. He did not mention what he planned to use as a caption. And I quote, Fish caught Thursday afternoon at Lawrence Cook's Pond. Lawrence, my dad's lifelong friend, who was not one to open his private pond up for the public, almost fainted when he saw it in the paper. The time my daddy backed into my car three times in one day during Master's Week. The first time was in the driveway at the funeral home in Reynolds when he was getting ready to leave for Augusta. The second was about five minutes later when he saw me behind him at the stop sign. He decided he forgot to tell me something. He put his car in reverse and hit the accelerator. The third was the same evening at the house in Augusta they had rented. I was parked behind him in the driveway. We were leaving for dinner. He slammed his car in reverse before I could start my car. All three incidents were in a span of 12 hours. Each time he blamed it on me. The time. I had a golden age couple come to my little furniture store and spent a great bit of time to pick out a perfect recliner for the husband. They finally made a decision. And I quickly had the chair delivered to their house before they changed their mind. The next morning I got a call from the lady. Not only did I sell them the chair, but I was the coroner, the funeral director, and their friend. She told me her husband was dead. I rushed to the house and sure enough, he'd passed away. I couldn't help but notice that he died in his new recliner with the price tag still hanging on the chair. After doing all the stuff coroners and funeral directors do, the wife followed me outside as I was leaving, and she asked me if she could get her money back for the recliner. Of course, I agreed. I eventually put the chair back in the store and on display at half price. Nobody was interested in the chair, even at half price, when I disclosed that someone died in it. I ended up taking the chair to my house and sat in it for years. The time when my mother was dying and all of us were gathered in her room. Daddy was sitting beside Mama's hospital bed and began reminiscing about their life together. They'd been married for 52 years and had a wonderful life together. It was very touching for all of us as we listened to Daddy talk about the love of his life, and we all remained quiet and let him talk. At some point, Daddy began talking about how Mama used to fuss about what he ate. That was a running source of contention between the two as long as all of us could remember. He began, your Mama would eat baked chicken, I ate fried chicken. Your Mama would eat baked fish, I ate fried fish. Your mama ate the peas, I ate the peas and drank the pot liquor that they were cooked in. We went to Hardy's, I would eat the french fries and your mama would never eat the fries. As he was talking, he glanced at mama in the bed who was gasping for breath and obviously on her last leg and then all of a sudden quietly said, and you see where that got her. We all started laughing. Most of us had to leave the room because we were laughing so hard. Daddy 
soon came out of the room, and he was obviously mad with all of us. I can't believe y'all are out here laughing with your mama lying in there dying. One thing's for certain. If mama had heard that and could have responded, she would have laughed too. The time. When my daddy died and we were seeing him for the first time in the casket at the funeral home, all of a sudden we realized we had forgotten to go by cousin Anita's house to bring her to the funeral home with the rest of the family for the first viewing. Anita was 96 years old, a little large and slow moving. I stated that I would go over to Anita's house to get her and bring her to the funeral home. My brother replied, it would be easier to take daddy over to see Anita. It could be worse Laugh, think, and cry With the country undertaker